Okay, well, welcome to the second bonus episode of Eldritch Girl this month. And this time I'm going to be reading two pieces for you from the Monstrous May Challenge that I'm doing on Twitter. You can go to Johannes T. Evans on Twitter and see all of the prompts for that. Um, Johannes is doing some uh, live stuff with the Romancing the Gothic project as well. Um, so there's things like tea with monsters in the morning and evening. Um, it's British time where we kind of just meet up and chat about our work and what we're doing and what we're writing about. So that's still going on every day through May. And I'm doing stuff and posting it exclusively on my Kofi. I've posted one thing on my blog as well, but everything that I'm writing and um, doing for this is going to be on the Kofi mainly. Some of it is for free and some of it is for patrons so or supporters. So if you um, if you support me on Kofi, you can just support me once and you get access to absolutely everything that is locked. Um, that becomes unlocked for 30 days. Um, so you can just drop me a drop me a tip in the Kofi jar and you can read everything I've got. I'm going to read out um, two things for you for the podcast. So one is iconic settings um, and that is from the point of view of Fairwood House. So that's uh, a bit before the crows, but it kind of ties into the crows um, and it just is a little bit of a fun short story for you. The other one is the prompt, a baby monster. Um, and it's a horror scene from a potential opening for my novella. Content warnings for that one. Pregnancy horror. There's a reference to um, cows being mutilated. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like um, Wakewood meets the thing, I guess. So think about that along those lines. Yeah, so I'm going to read those for you. Anyway, so enjoy. First of all, iconic settings. Unowned after the last Sauvant severed ties with the world, his mortal contract at an end, Fairwood House lost itself in emptiness and slept. Damp crept into its bones. Owners had always come and gone this way, renters of their own flesh and time, but never for so long. Fairwood's rooms remembered while they waited, already in decline. Remnants of 13th century masonry in its roots chanted soft, sonorous lullabies. The maze of attics lay abandoned and recalled days of verdant green before they hacked its ribs from the earth and stripped them down for supports. The bedroom slipped into dreaming, painless and quiet. Mould spread and seeped everywhere, rot set in, rainwater stalked the dismal cracks down the walls. Fairwood roused itself briefly when the agents came, summoned some warmth into its tiles and tried to make its rooms welcoming, but they were stony-faced, cold-fingered, and they were soon gone. The study, which had seen many such men over the years, recognised them as vessels of profit with no love in their briefcases, hearts of paper and ink. Disseminating this knowledge to the rest of its rooms, quashing hope and banishing it into dusty corners, Fairwood fell back to its rest, dissatisfied. As time went on, visitors diminished. Only trespassers and intruders came. They congregated in twos and threes, but Fairwood did not know who they were. The upper windows watched them gather, pointing, huddling, conspiring. They came back with vans at night for the lead and copper, experienced skinners stripping the roof as the attics groaned beneath them. 
Others forced open the tradesman's entrance at the back, despite the door's valiant resistance. The mortise lock shuddered, bolt biting hard into the frame, but they tore their way inside and ripped out wires like pulling teeth. The parlour bells jingled in pain. The rooms lost touch with each other, consciousness fragmenting, leaving the second best bedroom utterly bereft. They didn't come back. Gradually, the rooms found ways to reconnect, through cracks and damp and the eddies of the draughts. The house whispered to itself on moonless nights, and intruders drawn to eerie things came to listen ghoulishly to its sad stories. Sometimes they stole, sometimes they gave it swirls of paint its panels didn't want, lacquering and disfiguring and gouging initials into oak that remembered the days of Cromwell. After a while, they stopped coming back. Only the murder came back, twilight after twilight, Dark feathers adorned the gutters, beady eyes glittered like jewels on the slates, wicked beaks gaped in cackling calls. They were its consolation. Fairwood drifted in dreams, anchored to its plot, the crows its guardians and watchers. They warned it of other intruders that came, loitering, littering, talking over the house's whispers. As time went on, those that came forgot its real name, and the house slipped back into disturbed slumber, alone but for the birds, slowly forgetting too. It was winter when the storm felled the oak tree. It crashed down in flames, the 18th century kitchen extension breaking its fall, and the house woke, dismembered, to smoke and fire. It couldn't sleep again for a long time. Visitors came and took the tree away and assessed the damage. They were different to the people its owners had called in once upon a time, no flannel shirts and wheelbarrows here. The master bedroom recalled previous attempts at landscape gardening, regressing to its glory days, lost in the dusty layers of its own daydreams. Beyond its tattered curtains, the visitors churned the garden into a Flanders field of mud and war, machines and saws despoiling the piece, seen straight out of the night terrors still embedded in the bedroom walls like shrapnel. The crow struggled to coalesce its fragmented thoughts and pleaded with them to stay. One said he didn't like the way the wood groaned, although it was stable. One said they thought the wind had found gaps in the warren of attics, that the shingles were loose. One said it gave her the creeps. They boarded up the hole with MDF and Yale locks. Stay for tea, pleaded the kitchen's remains. But they had brought their own, and the crows had nothing they wanted. They left. Others came, emboldened scavengers. The crows called in warning. The doors couldn't stop them. They came and lit fires on its floorboards, spilt beer and blood and sweat. But they were not owners and they didn't stay. Their presence only hollowed out the house where an owner would have hallowed it. They took things, small things, tokens that belonged in cupboards and drawers wrapped in cloth. Little by little, the crows emptied out. The living room lost its fireplace tiles, hearth plundered and ravaged. The music room's dust sheets were left in shameful disarray, coy corners of broken furniture left exposed to prying eyes. I am here, it thought, seeking an owner. See me, help me. But nobody came. It's cursed, they said. It's haunted. The birds took off at the sling of stones. The house bore the scars of pebbles, bottles, paint. The conservatory panes collapsed, support splintered, spongy, brittle. Glass stared blankly upwards, fractured, reflecting the sky. It's an eerie old place, they said. 
must be full of ghosts. But under the shards of moonlight, nothing stirred in the corridors, nothing glided through the rooms, nothing stroked against the glass. Robbed even of its name, the crows drifted back into a sick slumber, uneasy, fitful, angry. Deep in its coal cellar, rage began to rise, incendiary, charcoal thick. It seeped upwards, tempered by the remains of the 13th century crypt, whose thick stones still echoed with pleas of peace and reconciliation. But the crypt could not sing loudly enough, not any more, and the cellar's rage rose higher, through the channels of black mould tracking their way through the mortar between the bricks. It seeped through its beams and joists like sap through a living tree. I am here. I am here. I see you. A young boy entered another intruder forcing his way in to steal. The crows wrenched its rotten boards apart and the boy fell through the coal cellar's trapdoor, sapling legs snapping like rotten banister bars. The house enveloped his screams, fed from them, hissed and creaked in satisfaction. Visitors returned briefly to extract him, blue flashing lights scything over the nettles and bricks. Few entered after that. At first, the crows exulted, hulking in lonely starlight, casting ugly, twisted shadows of rage on the lawns. But the rage dried, crumbled away, leaving it empty and alone. How was it to find an owner now? Desire emanated from its broken places, spreading on the wind like wood smoke, purling around the passers-by who breathed it in. Clouds of longing drifted through the neighbouring trees of the chase, over Redditch Lane, and across the melancholy slash of bare fields sloping to the sea. All it found was a brown-eyed, broken boy, too young for it, but the crows filled up his lungs and penetrated to his bones. But the boy could not enter, and he would never be an owner. He came barefoot through the woods, dirty as the windowsills, skin scratched and scarred by belt beatings. Within him the house felt a rage, charcoal dark and easily ignited, he sat on the edge by the fence, always beneath the same tree. The lonely boy. He never came in. A group of children jostled each other far below, wide-eyed and perspiring. One threw a stone, smashing through an upper window pane and splintering its vision. The intact panes overlooked the lawn where the lonely boy was watching, staying away. The crows felt his rage, the flare of anger and indignation. Hurt them, it whispered. The lonely boy circled the perimeter and got the stone thrower alone and the crows heard a bone snap and a scream but couldn't see on that side, not any more. The house settled, temporarily content. But the lonely boy could not give it what it wanted. The sun and moon cycled across the sky in a dance, shadows sailing over its rough crumbling facade and spinning through its hollow mass as paper skin peeled away from the plaster beneath. Its vision was blurred, distorted with dust and grime and a thousand cracks. It could see in all directions from the broken shards lying on the ground, reflections bouncing and light dazzling, a thousand eyes in all directions. The lonely boy was always just on the edge of sight. Sometimes he disemboweled squirrels. He talked to the house, told secrets, spoke of life in other structures the crows dimly imagined. A few years later, he left lager cans behind, washing down pills that made him unpredictable and telling the house it was his 15th birthday. The gaping wound in its kitchen mourned the absence of cake. 
He slumped by the fence and watched the crumbling walls, longing in his glazed, wild eyes. The crows heard its name on his tongue, its real name, not the other. And so Fairwood remembered. Fairwood waited for him to grow up, but the contract was not for him. He was not, would never be an owner, his broken places never healed. Fairwood released the last breath of hope from its casements in a flutter of dark moths and let them flutter away into the moonlight. Without attention, it slid deeper into decay. The moon and sun continued their dance, rotating sharp and silver, hot and arcing over its form. Fairwood called out, weaker, one more time. I'm here. I'm here. See me. The dying lambent sunlight played on its windows, winking out a distress call. It caught a glimpse of a stranger as the essence of her fragmented self passed by. She was a passenger in a blue saloon, heading up Breditch Lane towards the village of Piddingdean. Fairwood felt her the way it felt all those with jagged edges and broken places, but many had passed that way and left nothing behind. This one left a spark, a jolt of surprise, that left its own invisible mark on the masonry. The car rolled by and she was gone. Fairwood did not expect her to come back. It had released its hope, after all, a long time ago. But the moths had returned to lodge in the dusty corners as though they had never left, and so Fairwood found itself hoping. The fragment of her spark stuck close, like a barbed teasel on a velvet curtain, although it knew nothing about her. For days it sifted through the lingering impact of this brief encounter. She reminded some rooms of numerous maids, two housekeepers and a chimney sweep. Small facets of them tessellated with a spark of her, but there was more to her than this, more it didn't know. The house pined, sagging, waiting. The wishing well in the garden hummed with stagnant anticipation under its boards and iron bars. Then, like the moths, she came back. The first time it saw her properly, she was walking through its twisted gates, unafraid as the locals were of its shadows and scars. The closer she got, the stronger Fairwood sensed she had plenty of her own. Yet she was not like the lonely boy whose inner ruins were beyond repair. The stranger resonated with the house in ways he did not, their broken places intertwining. Fairwood felt each reverent step she took along the cracked path, treading lightly as though she were in a sacred space where shoes were profane. She slipped through the weeds and nettles, following a winding trail where once a straight, wide drive had been. Fairwood remembered how things were, and although it was no longer looking its best, it wondered what she saw. Did she see the pediments collapsed and crumbling? Did she see the holes in the roof, the damage of the storms? Did she see what they had done to it, the scars and the wounds? Or could she see it as it was, as it wanted to be seen, as it had once been and could be again. The murder of crows gathered silently in the tall, weed-choked grass took off as one in a dark, ragged cloud of beating black wings. Fairwood waited. Its porch, overgrown with ivy and creeping weeds, offered itself to her with anticipation in the breathless stillness of the afternoon light. Its upper room saw her dimly through fractured, grime-obscured panes, watching as she took her first steps up to the grand entrance, sunbeams glinting softly over her hair. She could have been anyone. Fairwood didn't care if she was a shop girl or an axe murderer. 
The music room alone recalled a past owner's savage reign of axe blows in a drunken rage hundreds of season cycles ago and quietly begged to differ, but was overruled. The house waited as she approached, wanting to find out who she was. Breathes of its need, its hope, its desire poured from its chimneys, pulled invisible in the grounds, pulled her closer. She stood at the door. Her soft touch transferred her palm's heat onto the mullion, infusing the whole door with tendrils of warmth. It blushed through the lock and the hinges, bleeding gently into the brick and seeping into the mortar. It spread around holes and crevices, ravaged by time and vandals, impregnating the plaster cracks and filling them with a cordial glow. Its hinges moaned as she pushed, gentle but firm, her fingers trembling. After so many rough, forced entries by those who came stripping and stealing, this felt different. Foliage and debris swirled in the brief gust as its proud door yielded to her careful pressure. The inward suck of air left an anticipatory tension behind. She stood still, holding her breath as she paused in the entrance, bright eyes full of wonder and teasing mischief. She took in the ruined splendour beyond the doorway, the contours of the oak panelling that lined the hall, the proud girth of the banisters of the grand staircase, erect and solid after all these years, and the cracks that ran through the aged plaster like varicose veins. Then she entered. The door swung behind her, taking her in, swallowing her up. She took a few steps across the tiles, adding her footsteps to the echoes of those that had gone before, but each tread felt to the jaded reception hall, as if it was virgin ground again. She closed her eyes, and Fairwood felt both the chill shooting through her and a sense of certainty. Yours, the crows whispered. Floorboards settled above her head, the wind rustling through the holes and cracks and crevices. Mine, she responded, absorbing the thought as if it came from deep within herself. It had her. The crows creaked victorious. Mine. So this is an opening scene, potentially, from my 1940s sapphic novella, which is tentatively titled The Snow Children of Much Clebury. Vibes are something like Wakewood and The Thing, I guess. Um, and it's available on my Kofi for supporters only. The blizzard covered most of the Gregson's fields, shrouding the scarecrow in white mist until his spindly dark shape was partially erased by the flurries. His battered silhouette was the only landmark visible to Jem Gregson, struggling on through the drifts and ice to the bone beneath his greatcoat. Jem's eyes are weaker than they once were, but still sharp and well-trained. As the wind died down in a rare lull, he turned to glance behind, and it sprang back up again and whipped across his wizened cheek like a knife. His footprints, as deep as they were, for he was a heavy man and the trudging had been slow going, were gone already. The nearest steps were shallow imprints of the side of his heel, where he had a habit of turning his weight outwards. He was nearly at the scarecrow now. Old Rusty was a tattered beggar, turnip-headed, dirty coat torn to rags and scraps. The rusty wire tying his poles together crosswise, from which he got his name, bit into the worn wood. He had lost a glove but the other clung on gamely underneath the coarse twists of twine. The carved eyes were full of snow. Jem didn't touch him in case the pole snapped. It was already bowing and bending with each vicious gust, setting old Rusty dancing like a hanged man. Jem didn't like it. 
something twisted in his chest, a cold thrill of fear. It wasn't the scarecrow or the weather, although they were bad enough. It was the snowmen. Now he was up to old Rusty, he could see what Agatha had taken on so about, looking out of the farmhouse window. They were in a row, slender columns of tightly packed, brilliantly white crystals, glittering until his eyes ached. They had no twiggy arms or brightly coloured scarves, but he could tell they were meant to be roughly human-shaped, as each had a perfectly round ball placed on top of its tapered trunk. Jem had his rifle over his shoulder, but he wasn't sure it would do him much good. Not against whatever had ripped open his cows. Must be a maniac, he thought, not willing to bow to supernatural fancies of his wife. Some POW escaped from a camp or parachuted in and the invasion started. First that, now this. They had just appeared. The spherical heads were blank, without coal eyes or carrot noses, no studded black smile to mark out the face. Each one was exactly the same, and he huddled by old Rusty and counted five, no six, of them altogether. Another tremendous gust caught him off guard, slicing through his thick woolen layers and vest, biting into his ribs. The wind had teeth and it took his breath away. He hunched, gasping, and dropped the rifle in the snow. Doubled over, he peered through the curtain of thick, silent flakes, glimmers of colour playing tricks on his eyes. He tried to find it, but the flakes settled over the polished wood and buried it from view. His breath froze, eyelashes stiff and icy, joints locking him in place. Jem groaned, but the blizzard muffled the sound. He was stuck knee-deep in the field, as sure as old Rusty, pain lancing through the core of him and shooting through every bone. Agatha should be watching. He hoped she would have the sense not to come out in this, to leave him be. It was her he was worried about, heart pounding with the pain. He realised he couldn't move, and Tommy was stuck over in Painsford with the van, and they had no phone for her to call from. Not unless she went down the lane to the vicarage, but that was a mile, and in this weather. He'd have to unstick himself. There was nothing for it. Jem howled as his back froze up, tight and painfully tense. He might have yelled into a feather pillow. There was another lull, and it lifted, and he saw the snowmen were bleeding. Adrenaline did what willpower wouldn't. Jem caught hold of old Rusty and the pole held, encased in a sheath of ice. He levered himself part way up and forced his legs into motion, one foot then the other, wading through the thick crystalline bellows until he got to the nearest one. It was not so tall as him, a child's height. It bled from a place about a quarter of the way up from the ground, a triangle of fresh red staining the pristine surface. He didn't know how he knew it was blood. Years of farming had given him an instinct for wounds on his livestock and the dogs, and he had seen enough of it come slaughtering time. It couldn't be anything else, the way it oozed and ran and spread. Jem had a horrible feeling that the snowman was not a snowman. That it, like the ice around old Rusty's pole, was a sheath around something else. He dug his gloved fingers into the spot above the blood and swore as they hit resistance. He tried again, twisting them in slower, clawing the compacted snow away. There was something underneath, something red and slippery. Steam trickled out of the wound he'd made. Jem wanted to stop, but he couldn't. He needed to know what they'd done, who they were, why something like this was in his field. He clawed chunks of snow away from the pulsing, warm thing beneath. His gloves came away stained and wet. It was like birthing a calf, he thought, breath ragged. The snow stung his knuckles, numbed his fingers with a thousand needles before all he felt was the cold. 
The snowman crumbled into the drifts, deepening around his aching legs, and the thing slid out of it, red raw and bloody. Jem gave a shout that was snatched away on the wind and muffled by the falling flakes. It flopped out of its icy prison, a cow's womb, warm and wet and bleeding. Full. Jem struggled back, every step agony, flailing stiffly around for the butt of his rifle. The womb pulsed, alive. He made it back to the scarecrow, the few feet feeling like miles, and thrust his arm up to the elbow in the fresh fall. He found something hard, but it took moments to register. He barely felt what it was and could hardly close his fingers around it. The rifle came away from the snow with a heave that took all he had. He couldn't feel it in his hands. It may as well be a stalactite, smooth and ice cold. He fumbled for the trigger, but his finger wouldn't crook. The womb split open, spilling slick, bloody contents out over the snow. Jem forced the rifle butt tight into his shoulder, finger stuck and protesting, and another savage flurry blinded him for a moment. When it lifted a little, Jem could see a spider-thin limb, pale as the snow beneath the streaks and globs of afterbirth, sticking out of the split. A perfect hand, four fingers and a thumb, no bigger than his granddaughter's, starred out with its palm towards him. Jem stumbled in surprise as the wind whipped him, and the gun went off. Okay, well, that's uh, Iconic Settings and Baby Monster. Um, two out of my various contributions to Monstrous May Challenge. If you do want to read more, I've got tons more. Um, some of them are cut scenes from The Crows. There's some stuff that didn't make it into 13th, the, ne the next novel. There's some stuff that are kind of exploration scenes that I just wrote for fun. There's some brand new stuff. There's stuff about merfolk. There's stuff about vampires. I've got all sorts of things. So, oh, and there's a, a really cool werewolf scene as well. So if you want a mix of stuff for Monstrous May, look no further than my Kofi. So that's uh, ko-fi.com forward slash cmrosens. And you'll be able to find all of my stuff there. Drop a tip in the tip jar for three British pounds and you get access for 30 days for everything that I've got locked. But if you don't want to do that and you just want to read the free stuff, go ahead. Um, but please share my Kofi as well because other people might want to support me. And it's just a nice way of um, supporting me if you can't drop any money in the jar. Um, if you do want to uh, buy anything from my shop as well, you can buy all my ebooks from my shop. So that's all my Kofi. Um, and if you did share it with people, I would be really grateful. Um, look forward to seeing you on Thursday and we'll do the next chapter of The Crows. Have a good week, everyone. Bye.